Welcome to Near East PolicyCast. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. When the 45th president of the United States gets down to work on January 21, 2017, the new commander-in-chief will face life or death decisions that will shape America's role in the Middle East for years to come. In this podcast series, Washington Institute scholars explore those historic challenges. As former high-level officials in Democratic and Republican administrations, our experts know the issues, the stakes, the leaders, and the players on the ground. Join us as we explore the Middle East 2017 challenges and choices. If our end goal is to keep Americans safe during a very dangerous moment in the world and dangerous moment in the region, then we need to focus on that like a laser. And we need to be very aware about the way in which our comments on other countries' internal politics undermine our ability to work with those governments in fighting terrorists. Today, we'll hear from Egypt expert Eric Traeger, the Esther K. Wagner Fellow at the Washington Institute. Eric is the author of the just-published book, Arab Fall, How the Muslim Brotherhood Won and Lost Egypt in 891 Days. After this. This is Kate Bauer, Senior Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Washington Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies to secure them. Find all of our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. On the first day, the morning of January 21, the new president is going to be faced with choices. If you had a chance, some FaceTime with the new president, POTUS 45, on you know, the first morning of the new administration, and had a chance to brief, what are the choices that the next administration is going to have to face quickly that are going to set the stage for its four to eight years of running American Middle East policy? The most important choice and a choice that has come up both in the general election but came up in both parties' primary elections is what is America's role in the world and what is America's role in the Middle East? Now, of course, I would advise that America has to remain actively engaged in the Middle East. The Middle East is still the region from which we face the most threats to our security. It's also a region in which we face uh, many opportunities, where we have many partners who can help us deal with those challenges. And and that's what I'd, I'd recommend. But the reason why this election has been so interesting is that for the first time in in maybe seven decades, maybe eight decades, that premise, that premise that America needs a strong position in the world and, and a strong position in the Middle East is, is being questioned. The terms of that questioning often seem to strike me anyway as being akin to sort of corporate structure. If you're in the widget making business, your factory that makes widgets and your sales department, those are profit centers. Every widget you sell, every deal you make, that makes you money. Your HR department is a loss center. You have to have one. You can't do business without it. You can't sell your widgets without paying your salespeople and your factory uh, workers. But you look at the structure of the business and your goal in HR is always going to be cut costs, minimize loss. And it feels like there is an undercurrent of dividing the world and saying, well, Europe, the Americas, East Asia, those are our profit centers. Those where we can forward our values and achieve our material interests. And the Middle East, Middle East is a loss center. We just got to manage it and, and reduce our exposure, reduce our risk, reduce our losses, write it off. It's not going to be a profit center for American interests. Is there a way in which America can leverage its relationships in the Middle East and its involvement there to make it 
a profit center, to make it a place that matters to us and is beneficial to American interests, not just a place where we manage the threats. I tend to be pretty bearish on uh, the prospects of the Middle East being a profit center in the in the near future. The Middle East, as I see it, is at the moment primarily a source of threats, threats that we need to take very seriously, threats that we have been at times successful at managing, at times very unsuccessful at managing, such as at present. But I don't see the Middle East, you know, as a, as a region as a whole, becoming extremely productive or moving towards more inclusive governance anytime soon. What we have in the region right now is a series of existential conflicts that breed all sorts of local resentments, civil war, of course, in, uh, in Syria and elsewhere, um, and uh, terrorism. And, and the problem is that in recent years, the United States has taken a step back. And uh, I would hope that the next administration, who you know, whoever's running it, uh, would see opportunities for engaging partners in managing those risks. And then, sure, maybe in the longer run, uh, if you could help promote stability through our allies, then you could have something more economically productive, more politically inclusive. But I think that's very unrealistic in the near term. But it doesn't make the Middle East any any less important. Uh, you know, every day our government is handling threats that emanate whether due to planning or due to inspiration from the region. And that will that will have to continue and, and trying to uh, mitigate those risks requires engagement. You've written uh, recently uh, very compellingly on, on the, the topic of, of balancing America's values interests versus our strategic interests. So to what extent do we base our relationships with our partners, even our adversaries, on the question of promoting American values and what we see as universal human rights versus how much do we just buckle down and deal with the world as it is and look to uh, our material interests and our strategic interests, the interests of the American people at home and abroad? How should Washington think about that balance? I think that for the foreseeable future, American values will not be realized uh, or practiced in the Middle East uh, by and large because this is a region that is still dealing with a series of existential conflicts, sectarian conflicts. It's a, it's a region that, for American policymakers based 6,000 miles away, or more or less, depending where we're talking about, is increasingly hard to manage. And so my advice to the next administration would be you have to look at at the Middle East in terms of what you absolutely need from it and not in terms of what you want it to be because it will not satisfy American desires or, or American hopes and dreams for the Middle East anytime soon. The failure of the Arab Spring, the fact that really only Tunisia has moved more along the course of something that's inclusive and roughly democratic, though still with, of course, many challenges, should be a, a warning sign to future administrations to think too optimistically about what just the right amount of you know, American pressure might produce in another country's uh, internal politics. The, the, the problem is that when you have political transitions, as we had in multiple countries after the Arab Spring, things tend to move so quickly, 
and the struggles for those involved within those domestic political systems uh, carry such heavy stakes that it's very hard for policymakers based 6,000 miles away, working within their own massive bureaucracy, to A, move quickly enough, and B, to work with the same types of stakes in mind. And, and this is why, I think, very well-intentioned policymakers simply got political transitions wrong, overstated the extent to which these transitions were even about political reform or democracy, and at times that came at the cost of strategic relationships. And of course, that's especially true in a country like Egypt, where uh, I think Americans, and to some extent maybe maybe I also exhibited this, over, over interpreted the 2011 uprising as a call for democracy, which it was in part, but it very quickly became a power struggle between the military and the brotherhood. And by still speaking about democracy, uh, we, we very much hurt our relationship with the military, which is, of course, the institution that's, that's you know, to, to some extent running the country right now. In, in uh, spring, you wrote in the New York Daily News, the ultimate lesson of the Arab Spring is that Washington can best exert its influence when it acts decisively and aligns its policy with the reality on the ground. Now, in those decisive 18 days in 2011, for some of that time, you were, you were in Cairo. You were at Tahrir Square. You report at the time that, that it felt to Egyptians on the ground and to even people inside the bureaucracy that the country was changing. The terms of power were transforming before people's eyes from day to day. If things can change that quickly on the ground, what should be the foundation that allows us to have a policy that, that can adapt, that can have realistic expectations but also perhaps take advantage of opportunities when they do present themselves. It requires the United States to define what it absolutely needs from these countries to advance American interests, and especially advance American interests that are, that are shared locally. Um, and, and we find many cases in which American interests in the region are shared with partner governments. When it comes to a country like Egypt, I believe that American interests have not changed from you know, the, the end of the Mubarak regime in 2010-2011 uh, until today, those are, uh, you know, counterterrorism, uh, preferred access for U.S. ships to the Suez Canal, overflight rights, strategic coordination, and of course, maintaining the uh, the peace treaty with Israel. And frankly, the the address for making sure that those interests are upheld hasn't changed during that period. It's been the U.S. It's been the Egyptian military. And, uh, and, you know, in a certain sense, you could say that the Obama administration succeeded in that uh, it, it did maintain relations with the Egyptian military, it did maintain the aid, it did maintain some level of a working relationship. The problem becomes when, rather than just focusing on what we absolutely need to get during a tumultuous period and who's going to be able to help us get it, we start getting involved in these broader debates about where, for example, Egypt is going. Are we betting on Mubarak? Are we betting on the military? Are we betting on Morsi? Are we now betting on Sisi? And I would argue that, sure, those, you know, those are the heads of states at different points, and they certainly matter, and, and it's worth engaging them. But at the end of the day, in Egypt, the U.S. relationship is about a relationship with the military. Uh, that's not, you know, sexy. Uh, that's not uh, about promoting democracy. It's about promoting strategic interests. 
and and what we should remember, I mean, there is this whole debate in Washington now is, you know, is Washington betting on CC? Will CC yield stability? It's perfectly reasonable to be skeptical about Egypt's current trajectory. Certainly I am to be skeptical about whether, you know, what CC and his government are doing can work. But at the end of the day, if the last six years have taught us anything, it's that if and when there's another round of political upheaval, the military will be the pivotal player. And it's therefore essential that we maintain that military relationship, which is why, in my view, it was a tremendous mistake to, to withhold a portion of the military aid in 2013 over politics. Mm. Um, if we want to shape Egypt's politics in any way, it's going to happen to the military. I'm not happy about that. I don't think that that's a great thing. I don't think that that's something that uh, is, is really going to advance democracy in any way. But in my experience, and, and I don't think this is a very controversial thing to say, that is how Egypt has worked uh, for, for most of the uh, uh, last century. So, um, so that, that's what it is. And, and I do believe that when America gets too engaged in transformational projects, it tends to get it wrong. It tends to bet on the wrong horse. It tends to overread the headline of the day. It tends to get wrapped up into the excitement. And because of the nature of our bureaucracy, it can't really respond quickly when responding quickly might make a difference. And, and when we talk about Tahrir Square in 2011, I, look, I was in Tahrir Square on January 25th, uh, the first day of the uprising. Did I think that Mubarak would go in 18 days? I didn't. I would not have bet on that at that moment. But I did think huh, something here is happening. This is a massive protest. You can see that they're very quickly turning from demanding freedom and, and bread and social equality to demanding you know, that, that Mubarak go. And if you'd spent any time in Egypt, as I had, you knew that that resonated to some extent in the society and that it required the, uh, the U.S. to say something quickly to at least get Mubarak to appoint a successor, to think through a transition process, to use its relationship to send that kind of message. And on January 25th, 2011, that was not the message that was sent. And it wasn't until uh, quite a few days later, after more protests, which ultimately were, were quite pivotal and, and seemed very pivotal at the time, that the U.S. Uh, finally called for a transition to happen now. But when that happened, it was already too late. Now, we should keep in mind that a graduate student, which is what I was at the time, with two eyes on Tahrir Square, is able to think things through and quote-unquote make decisions much more quickly than a massive bureaucracy like our foreign policy bureaucracy. But that just gets to my point, that when things move quickly, we are just not able to properly call things as they fall. And, and, uh, and we should be aware of that, and that's why we should keep an eye on the longer-term goals, on what we absolutely need to get out of these relationships, not on what we wish these countries were, because we will be let down and unable to determine that the vast majority of the time. In light of events in, in Turkey following a somewhat Egypt-like trajectory in which uh, the regime sees its opponents as a, an existential threat, or not in in theoretical terms, but in personal, they will kill me and my family terms. If that's what politics becomes, you wrote in the Wall Street Journal that even toothless calls for upholding human rights can be interpreted as acts of subversion when a government views repression as necessary for its own survival. On the other hand, Americans seem to largely expect our foreign dealings to at least contain some level of pro forma advocacy for American views of universal human rights and democracy. I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm not so convinced that 
when Americans look at the Middle East, the first thing that they want to see is an improvement of human rights. I, I, I think that actually, given what's happening in the world and given what's unfortunately happened in Orlando and San Bernardino, uh, reports out this morning that a stabber in Minneapolis was linked to ISIS. Obviously, the explosion uh, in Manhattan last night, which you know, does not appear at the moment to be terrorist-linked, but who knows? Uh, what's on many Americans' mind is the security threats and the and the terrorist threat we face. And, and because of that, I think many Americans want a Middle East policy that works. And if we talk about a Middle East policy that works, if we talk about a Middle East policy that keeps Americans safe without requiring a large-scale military engagement by American forces in the region, it requires working through allies. And to work through allies, it means working with them on their own terms. Now, in Turkey, you had an attempted coup that failed. Uh, a, a, a military jet could have and decided not to shoot down President Erdogan's uh, aircraft. That's to say that if you're Erdogan, you already believed you were in an existential struggle, given Turkey's particular history uh, with coups and with Islamists being overthrown by the military, and now you really feel that threat. And the last thing that someone like that wants to hear is that he should be gentle to people who, in his view, and by the way, he's not necessarily right in this view. I mean, you know, he's certainly overstanding this view, but in his view, uh, those are people that want to kill him and take out his entire government. So, so you can't have a productive conversation on uh, human rights in that context, and to, to raise the human rights concerns in that context will strike people uh, in that government as very insensitive to, to their own uh, needs. So it, it just gets down to how we frame the issue. If we frame the issue as, well, one of the key interests of the United States in the region is human rights, what I would say is this is a region with a very poor human rights record. We shouldn't be blind to that. We shouldn't uh, start you know, declaring that military dictators are Democrats and that Islamists are moderates. We should be very, very aware of what it is we're dealing with. But if our end goal is to keep Americans safe during a very dangerous moment in the world and dangerous moment in the region, then we need to focus on that like a laser. And we need to be very aware about the way in which our comments on other countries' internal politics undermine our ability to work with those governments in fighting terrorists. People have been talking since 2011 about the potential or, or real collapse of the state system, the, the Westphalian state system in the Middle East. Egypt has long been regarded as one of the strong, and in fact, a, a state that was like a Westphalian nation state before Europe had nation states outside of Britain. Is Egypt as a state going to make it? I would expect that it will for a couple of reasons, one of which is that Egypt is is one of the uh, Middle East very few nation states, in other words, in which the nation or the national identity corresponds by and large with the state boundaries. Uh, secondly, while, of course, in Egypt you do have, as you have in many other countries in the region, uh, a tribal element, uh, clans in, in Lower Egypt, that being Northern Egypt, uh, real tribes, you know, kind of big confederations of clans in Southern Egypt, known as Upper Egypt, and, of course, the Sinai, and, of course, uh, the Western Desert, 
by and large, those tribes and clans, really with the exception of, of the Sinai to some extent, affiliate with the central government and affiliate with the state and have long supported uh, successive uh, Egyptian governments, with the exception in most cases of the Morsi government, which should have been the first sign that that government uh, wouldn't last very long. Mm. So, you know, e- Egypt Egypt is unique in that sense. The other thing I want to say about Egypt that I think really is amazing is that this is a country that for roughly two and a half years did not have a functioning police force in much of the country. It's a country in which, you know, in which there is this this national element. There is this element of people sort of taking care of one another, uh, taking care of one another. And, and this is why I think it's been able as a country to muddle through and, and weather the storm thus far. In other words, despite there not being much of a police force, there was actually very little crime relative to other places in which police forces collapsed. Even though there's tremendous poverty in Egypt, high inflation right now that's, that's really hurting everybody, from you know, the wealthier tourism agencies to obviously just ordinary people struggling to, to buy food, you, you don't see starvation in Egypt because there is this informal safety net and there, there is this kind of pa- patriotic nationalist idea. It's one of the things that I really uh, respect about Egyptians and, and, and respect about the country. And this is why you know, I, I do think that it will it'll muddle through. Obviously, there are huge concerns about instability in the Western Desert. There's not complete central government control over the Sinai. That's obviously an understatement. Um, but, uh, but, but the country, I think, will continue to exist. Now, one other point here. Of course, many Egyptians don't believe that. Uh, many Egyptians believe that the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood in uh, 2011, 2012, uh, uh, really put all that in jeopardy, that the Brotherhood, because of the divisive way it governed, was trying to undo that that social fabric. Um, and they fear that had Morsi stayed in power, you would have had a situation like Syria. Again, because of uh, the unique national and social fabric that I've observed in Egypt, I don't think that that ever would have actually happened. But it's it's that fear that it might have happened that actually bolsters a government like Sisi's, which is also struggling, is also uh, facing huge challenges, but at the very least is wrapping itself very effectively in that patriotic nationalist banner. Four years hence, uh, January 21, 2021, Uh, would be the start of the subsequent presidential term, whether a new president or a second term. What would be the most reasonable, best-case scenario for the president to receive at a briefing or or the questions be put to the president uh, that morning, four years hence? Look, you'd want to see that ISIS has been eliminated as a a, uh, territorial entity that there's been some kind of political transition either in Syria or in a Syria that's been divided, and that you know there's a, a more inclusive government in Iraq that therefore is able to integrate uh, Sunnis and, uh, and prevent the reemergence of ISIS, which at that point would probably have gone back underground, uh, you know, as we saw prior to the emergence of ISIS. All that's to say that, of course, the domestic politics of these countries matters a great deal, and it matters a great deal to U.S. security interests. The problem that we face uh, is that we just don't have the bureaucratic capacity and the speed 
and in many cases, the right data to get those internal fights right. And the truth is that uh, if many of these countries can't get it right, what hope is there for us? And that's why I frankly think that U.S. for a best case scenario, with a more realistic scenario, is that we will still simply be partnering with govern governments to almost play whack-a-mole when it comes to terrorist threats. Is that good? No. Is that a great bumper sticker? Of course not. But my takeaway from the last eight years is that this may be the, uh, the best case scenario. And uh, before I let you go, I uh, wanted to ask about your book. First, how's it coming? When's it published? Uh... It should be off the press in a week. Terrific. Well, give me, give me a little bit of a book pitch. Uh, your, your, your new book is, is titled? It's called Arab Fall, How the Muslim Brotherhood Won and Lost Egypt in 891 Days. It traces the Brotherhood from the 2011 uprising up until Morsi's ouster with uh, a final section on the crackdown on the Brotherhood and its status today. Its basic argument is that the very things that helped the Muslim Brotherhood win power became liabilities in power. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood is a very rigidly hierarchical organization. All of its members have taken oaths to listen and obey the leaders. They're vetted over the course of a five to eight year indoctrination process, and they're organized in cells that are scattered throughout the country, all of which answer to a central authority. And it was the only organization in Egypt that had that kind of tight organization and committed membership, which is how it was able to win successive Egyptian elections after the 2011 uprising. The problem is that once it came to power, this organizational culture bred a certain exclusivism. And, and uh, the, bro the Brotherhood's ideology also is really defined by a certain power hunger, defined by this idea that uh, establishing an Islamic state means Muslim brothers governing that it alienated Egyptian people very quickly. It was unable to integrate the Egyptian bureaucracy into its very rigid hierarchy. And so that bureaucracy and mass protesters rebelled against it in July 2013. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I talk about the coup uh, and its aftermath. But it's pitched also as a corrective to much of the writing uh, that's out there about how the Muslim Brotherhood is a moderate organization or a democratic organization or one that could rule in a stable way. Now, obviously, events have demonstrated that many of those characterizations of the Brotherhood that were very popular during, and I would say even before, the Arab Spring didn't pan out. But by really going into the details about, A, how the Brotherhood is structured, and B, what the Brotherhood actually did, uh, I think, it, uh, I think it, it should put to rest the debate about whether or not the Muslim Brotherhood is a moderate organization. Eric Traeger is the Esther K. Wagner Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy and an expert on Egyptian politics and the Muslim Brotherhood. His new book is titled Arab Fall, How the Muslim Brotherhood Won and Lost Egypt in 891 Days, on bookshelves now. This has been Near East Policy Cast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers.